Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. Today's show is brought to you by the Circe Atrium, a dynamic online community where we can explore the foundations of classical education. Choose from one of four courses that combine online instruction and group discussions. Or if you can't choose, take them all. Join Heidi White for our Shakespeare Atrium, where she leads a close read of one comedy, one tragedy, and one history, as well as several sonnets for a well-rounded curriculum on learning, loving, and teaching the bard. David Hicks' Norms and Nobility is in many ways the impetus behind the Quiddity Podcast. Tanya Rizal spent years reading, studying, and discussing this seminal work in the classical renewal. Join Tanya and other fellow educators for this deep dive into David's cistern. Dr. Matthew Bianco longs for you to love Plato's dialogues as he does. In this course, he leads us on the path of the ancient and early medieval teachers through the ten essential dialogues that are the key to understanding all of Plato's works. Kristen Rudd founded the 100 Days of Dante Facebook group to share her love for the Divine Comedy. Now Kristen is ready to guide you through Dante so that you too can learn it, love it, and share that love with others. Go to circeinstitute.org backslash atrium to see more about these courses, including short videos from the instructors. In today's episode, we continue to part two of Katarina's interview with Jonathan Pajot about symbols, stories, and the patterns that lead us to God. Portions of this interview were originally published in the former journal, Issue 17. Now let's rejoin Katarina and Jonathan. Yeah. Yep. I've been thinking about that, um, especially as they've been having in America conversations about women being included in the draft, um, which to me seems so incredibly unnatural. And I've been wondering, does the world have to collide? Does it have to collapse? Do we have to have this massive implosion before things get better? (laughs) Is that what it's coming to? Because if I got drafted, I wouldn't go. And if I did go, I would literally help the enemy if they were injured. Like you don't want me, you don't want my friends as women out there killing people. You just don't. Anyway, are we just doomed to implode before we return to the proper order of things? Man, I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to tell you. It's just it's just like if it was a few years ago, I would have said no. But really? at this point, it, at this point, uh, everything has become so absurd and so it's so strong that I don't really see another way out. Now, the the one thing we can hope is that there's an implosion and a resurrection from the inside. But usually at this point in civilization, it's more like implosion and just get taken over from the outside. Hmm. Right? Because there are some people that don't have this and they're, they're just going to be stronger. And so what are you going to do? It's like, if you, if you, if you create patterns of that fragment you, and break you apart, then at some point you become potential for another identity to, to take. Right. It's only a matter of time, I guess, before that pocket of society essentially commits suicide, right. By like not having children five generations down the road or whatever it is. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a self, you can see it. Like it is, it's, 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 the symbolism is not a, it's not a people think like it's very woo, you know, it's very esoteric. It's very, 
uh, high, but it's not. It's like it's really very practical. It's like yeah. If you don't do these things, then your society will die. And it's it'll just happen. It's it's they'll stop having children. They'll stop caring about the things that make you live. They'll they'll be they'll be fascinated with by strangeness and obsessed with idiosyncrasy. And that leads to breakdown. And it's not a, it's nothing magical. It's, it's a real, just a process of, yeah, it's just a natural process really. Mm-hmm. I've been wondering if, and this is making me think of this as well. Um, if there might be an option, if there might be a way out through reorienting ourselves towards proper patterns um, and could, especially as the masculine and feminine are involved, could Christ as the masculine and Mary as the feminine be a way for us to reorient or are they, you know, an excellent man and an excellent woman, or might they be manifestations of a, of a more universal pattern that we could participate in, in a sort of a redeeming way? Well, definitely. I mean, I think that's why, I mean, I, I keep saying that really Christianity is the only rampart. Like it's the only thing that can not hold the whole society. It's not going to happen. It's not, I mean, I mean, who knows God can make miracles, but it doesn't seem like, like this is this whole thing is going to make it, but for sure that those that are going to make it are those that, that are true, right? Mm-hmm. Truth, truth wins. I mean, it looks like we're losing, but truth wins. It just, it just, a lot of things have to disappear before truth comes up again. Right. So you can imagine it really like an apple falling to the ground and it's going to rot. But the part of the apple that has the pattern, which is the seed, is going to rise again. Hmm. That's just how it works. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that these the symbols and the stories can seem really esoteric or maybe just abstract. Um, but it's actually really practical. It's actually really concrete. Um, what are some ways that we can experience these universal truths in a more bodily or physical manner? Well, being attentive to the way in which you participate in reality is probably the best way to, to kind of experience it. You can, if you're, let's say if you're a more secular person, you can, you can start to experience it at a very low level. Something, something like realizing how, patterned uh, a family dinner is how something like ritualized the family dinner is and how embodying certain patterns in that family dinner will make it succeed or not. Hmm. Right. We'll, we'll bring it into something powerful and communion like, or something divisive and annoying, which makes people want to get up and leave. Right. And so that's a coherent way to, engage with the patterns of reality and those those patterns like let's say the the way in which you exist as a family around the table for dinner scales up into higher forms so if you participate in a team the way in which you the way in which you for a team is a uh, like a sports team is a really good way of understanding this because a sports team has a common goal it has a common identity so the people that are on the team, if they want to succeed, they have to be able to keep their eye on that goal. They have to keep, they have to look up all the time. They always have to be looking up towards that goal, but looking up towards that goal implies also something like love for your neighbor. That is, you have to look out 
for your other team members and make sure that they're okay or else you're not going to reach that goal. You can't do it on your own. You need everybody to be there. And so that includes also self-sacrifice, which means that you as a person, in order to win the championship, you're going to have to sacrifice some things to the team. You're going to have to give up some of your attention. You're going to have to stop thinking about other things while you're playing. You're going to have to spend, give time, give energy, give attention to the team and to others in order for that team to to be successful in its goal. Well, that type of behavior, that's how a city works. That's how a country works. That's how a church works. And the church is the highest form because the, the purpose or the goal is the highest goal. And so in theory, the love that we have for each other should be the deepest love as well. You know, the most, the fullest love, right? Because obviously in the team, the love you have for your team members is conditioned by the team, right? It's like you're obviously, it's not going to be, uh, it's going to be love towards the goal, right? I'm making sure that everybody's okay, that everybody's healthy, that everybody's working towards the goal, but maybe like, you know, crying with that person about their, you know, their divorce won't necessarily be part of like winning the team, but in a, in a church setting, then that, that becomes, then it becomes a more existential form of love which is linked to the worship of the source of everything. Mm. What's the difference then between secular rituals that just feel like really hooky and made up and like you're playing pretend, um, or at least sometimes I've experienced rituals that way, um, or a church ritual or maybe a true ritual that's allowing us to participate in these patterns? Um, Well, I would say that, you would be surprised how many rituals in your everyday life that you engage in that you don't realize are rituals. Um, For example, shaking someone's hand, saying hello, um, looking someone in the eyes when you're talking to them, but not too much, right? You have to, you have to kind of find a balance. Um, And even in speaking, right? Speaking and listening is a ritual because you, 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 you speak and you have to stop at some point because if you don't, leave space for the other to speak, then at some point the, the communion is broken. So all these are like dances. You can, you can understand them like a social dance where all of these patterns are, are actual rituals. They, they're, not, they're not as formal as what we think of as rituals, but they're definitely ritualized because if you do the opposite, you'll realize right away that it doesn't work. Like if, if instead of shaking someone's hand, you slap them in the face, like you'll know right away that those rituals aren't arbitrary, right? Instead of, you know, like instead of talking to someone, looking them in the eye, just try turning your back to them and talk the other way mm. and see what happens. See how long you can maintain that conversation. <laughs> like really, so, so your actual world is more ritualized than you think. Uh-huh. Now, one, of, one of the reasons why the secular rituals can seem hokey, um, some of them is because they're very superficial and arbitrary, Um, But then other times it's because we've also spent several centuries telling us that these things are superstitious. And so we struggle, for example, like let's say even when I was young, um, I remember in in the United States, you could have people would do flag raisings and would do all that kind of stuff. And so but it was totally natural for them. Uh, I don't know if it's still that still is something people do today, but there's a sense in which a lot of these rituals are kind of going away because people don't understand what they're for. They don't get it. You know, they they've 
they've been convinced that this is all kind of just superstitious. Yeah. Um, but new rituals are coming. They're coming. They're, they're coming. Uh, and they're, they're imposing themselves very religiously. Hmm. And so we'll see, we'll see where that goes. Mm. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, it is scary. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't love that. <laughs> Okay, well, thinking about, let's orient a little bit more towards parents and educators and students, even though I would like to talk about this forever. I know that you have not endless time, um, (laughs) limited time on your hands. How did you learn to interpret symbols in this way? What was your process? Um, It's difficult to totally understand because it it happened with my brother. It's something that we developed together. So in our 20s, we started having intuitions. We started having intuitions about meaning and about especially scripture, where we could see that there was a deep connectivity in the in in the Bible. There were a lot of connections between the stories, that the stories looked like each other, mm-hmm. and that this was being ignored in the context where we were. It was being ignored in almost something which would have been dangerous to people's faith because they didn't, they didn't think the world exists in patterns. And almost as if like, if you could show the patterns of the story that you would somehow be saying they're not true, mm-hmm. that they're like just myths or just stories because they're pattern. Um, and so we were, we were wondering like what's going on because we could just see just how deep these patterns were in scripture and just how powerful they repeated themselves all through the Bible up, up into the story of Christ. Um, and so we started investigating those types of things on our own in different ways. Um, you know, my brother ended up reading a lot of rabbinical commentary and then I started reading the church fathers mm-hmm. and then we could see this form of thinking, which was there in the ancient thinking that, that because the world is patterned, there's absolutely nothing weird about stories being patterned. They have to be patterned or else you wouldn't recognize them as stories. And so we started to see that, oh, wait a minute. So now not only is not only are the stories patterned, especially in scripture, but diving into that pattern, understanding it and embodying it or living it can give you something like a key to reality. So the the pattern of Genesis, especially like the first chapter, first two chapters of Genesis, they're really like a map of reality. They're like a map that can help you understand the manner in which the world works, and the manner in which you, you engage the world. And treating, for example, Genesis 1 and 2 as kind of scientific documents has been very damaging to people seeing that because they're focused on, the, on these weird minutiae and like trying to make it fit with research and making fit with the recent finding and everything. And they're failing to see the story that's there. You know, which is this powerful creation of two extremes, heaven and earth, and how they slowly move towards a middle, which is man as the union of breath and dirt of, of, of dust, right? The union of like the chaos below and the, the spirit above. And it's like, then you see that you're like, wow, okay. So now you realize, wait a minute. Now, so many stories are about that. So many stories are about how can we join this thing above with this thing below? So Moses goes up the hill, gets the law, brings it back down, but it doesn't work. So he smashes the, 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 the tablets, right? He has to go back up and get, get them again because there's no connection. And then you'll see many places where 
the connection gets broken and then it gets reestablished. Hmm. So that's how we, we started to see it. And we realized that, wait a minute, all of these stories, that's what they're doing. They're showing us, helping us participate in this pattern, mm-hmm. which now once you, once you embody it, once you live it, once you get it, you can turn it towards anything. You can understand politics. You can understand movies. You can understand, you know, fiction, anything that you want to look at. You can understand how, why, why clothing is the way it is. You can understand anything pretty much that is a human experience you can now understand through the lens of what scripture gives us. Huh? So one of the beautiful things that scripture gives is obviously a motive or a teaching of a way of life, the virtues that we ought to live by, but then it's also giving us, and maybe more, I don't want to say more importantly, but just as importantly, um, an internal understanding of the patterns and we can live by those maybe even without having a rational understanding of the teachings in scripture. Can we? No, definitely. That's why, that's why, you know, the idea that the, how can I say this, that the simple, the simple faith is mm-hmm. in a way the superior one to the intellectual one, you know? And so there's a manner in which you don't necessarily have to understand these patterns to live them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can understand them. If you have the capacity, then you can notice how it works. And, if you reduce the scripture to, to the idea of just virtue rather than a more generalized notion of a, a mode of being by which the world lays itself out, then there's so many things in scripture you'll never understand. They'll just yeah. be a mystery to you forever. Like you'll never understand why God says not to mix wool and linen. You'll never, let, you'll never understand these types of laws in the Old Testament, which just seem so foreign to us, but which once you understand that it's also about the manner in which the world exists and the manner in which we engage the world, then they start to make, they start to make total sense. Huh. Do you have time to explain why he says not to mix well? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'd love to hear the explanation. All right. I can explain it in a, in a few ways. I need, I need like two prong approach here to help you understand okay. that. All right. So the first prong, the first prong approach is to understand um, why you tell people, why you tell your children to shake someone's hand, all right? So if you tell your kids, when you meet someone, look them in the eye, shake their hand, okay? Now, what what is that? You're asking them to touch someone else's hand. Is that that what you're doing, right? You're basically saying, when you meet someone, touch their hand. Now, if you reduce it to its most material basis, it's absolutely insane. It's as insane as not mixing wool and linen. But if you understand it as what you're trying to do is instantiate a mode of being through a practice that has corollaries. And so you, you say, when you're shaking someone's hand, what you're saying is you need to act in a way, right. That acknowledges the other person at the right distance, right? You don't come right up to a stranger and hug them. You don't put your hands behind your back and stand away and look at them weird. You come up to them, you put your, your good hand out, and then you, you shake their hand to show that you're engaging with them. Hmm. And so that pattern, that gesture will have ramifications in other ways your child behaves. And so it will, without telling your child, you need to act with respect. Like that, that doesn't mean anything. You don't, we don't learn abstract behaviors. We learn concrete behaviors. And so telling your child, shake the hand of the person, look them in the eye, you're teaching them to respect 
You're teaching them the proper distance, the proper relationship with a stranger. You're teaching them all these things, but it's through behavior. It's not through an abstract way of talking. Okay. Now, in the world, there are categories. There are categories, distinct categories of things. And those distinct categories are separators ontologically. They're ontological separators. And so we have the world of plants and we have the world of animals. Those are two ontological, let's say two ontological levels of reality. They're separators, right? And so that's why they're used in the temple and in the tabernacle as separators. So in the tabernacle, you have a linen veil and then you have a wool veil. They separate the holy place from the holy of holies and the holy place from the, 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 the court. So there's a linen veil, there's a wool veil, and then there's actually a, on the outside of the tabernacle, there's a, a skin, a garment of skin, of dead skins. All right. And so the reason why the temp, the, 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 the reason why the veils in the, in the tabernacle are, are linen and wool are the same reason why, why you don't mix wool and linen in a piece of cloth is because doing that, being attentive to that will help you know and engage with the world by keeping things properly separated from each other. <clears throat> so I can give you a very simple example in a world where in a world where people don't mix wool and linen together, you would not have tomatoes in which you inject pork genes. You wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be growing human ears on, on, uh, on rats. You wouldn't uh, have glow in the dark pigs. And you would never have to say, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have to go into the, the explicit difference. You're creating a mode of being in which people understand that you have to keep certain categories apart from each other or else the world starts to collapse if you don't. Right. And so, so, so the reason why you don't mix that is that's, it's it. And it's, and it, if you can understand it also, like right in the, in, it's already there in the garden of Eden, because when Adam and Eve fall, what do they cover themselves with first? They cover themselves with a leaf and then they cover themselves with the skin. Yeah. So it's like, it's a layer of reality. It's so, so it's all related to each other. All these images are all related to each other. Hmm. So is maybe our inability to treat things as they're according to their own nature, why now we also don't understand monsters and even just very practically, I've seen a lot of stories. I mean, like the vampire, what's happened to the vampire and how now it's a good guy or um, centaurs. Like now there's like good centaurs. And I'm like, where did, no, like the whole point of them is that they're not, is that they're wild. Um is Not only are they good, they're better than us. The hybrids are better than us. We're obsessed with hybridity. It's going to become yeah. clear and clearer. There have been many signs that this is becoming more and more apparent. But it's so if in the if in an ancient story, the hybrid would also be a shady, would always be a shady character on the margin. Like the centaur tries to take your woman away from you and tries to cross the river, right? You have to stop it. It has to tries to go into the other world. It's a transition between mm. two, two worlds. And so it's the same now. So what, there was a, a TV, a show on Netflix called sweet tooth in which the hybrids are like, they're the saviors. 
There are human animal hybrids and they're the saviors of humanity that humans are evil. Humans are bad. And these hybrid hybrid characters, they're the, they're the good guys, but it's going to be, these stories are going to come at you nonstop from now on. I hope everybody's ready because it's, it's going to be nonstop. Gosh. Also terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Until they're actual real human animal hybrids, by the way. Cool. Because we don't think we, we don't think that's gonna happen, but it's like read Genesis again. Like read Genesis again and understand if you want to understand the idea of mixing angels with humans, it's like we're gonna have a version of that, it's just gonna be lower. Oh. It's going to be a confusion of separation of, of categories, but it's going to be human animal. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's already there. It's already there. It's, it's already there, but it hasn't fully, it's not the fruits of that aren't fully visible yet, but it's already there. It's already yeah. happening. It's terrifying to me when I see these things in children's stories, especially because they're so impressionable. And like you said, we need to give them true patterns for them to live by. Um, Little little thought experiment, I guess. If do you ever teach? Well, you homeschooled for a little while. I did teach. I did teach uh, art in a Catholic school for a few years. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, well, if you have the ability, let's say tomorrow, to walk into a school grades K through twelve, and you could teach one thing to one grade, but that's all you could do. What would you teach, and what age would you choose? Um. If I could teach like a subject, you mean? Um, not a subject, a lesson. Like just one thing. One you have one lesson, one piece of information that you can give to one one age group. Oh man. I mean, I think that if I could get if I could get, especially at around the age of 12, 13, um, I think that's the that's the most important place where you where you can get because they start to think like really think. And uh, if you can help someone at that age understand um, how facts are framed in stories. Then I think that that could be super helpful because then the person it's not about denying the, the 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 factual claim itself, but understanding that facts are always framed in stories. So that the, the child has the capacity to recognize the story. Mm. And that means that they, that they will be less in danger of being uh, indoctrinated because they will be able to, to, to recognize that, that there's always a story hiding behind what people are telling us. And that's fine. It's inevitable, actually. But we have to be able to know what that story is and what, it, what, it's, what its purpose is. Hmm. So you think that going about it would make your kid, it makes your kids suffer though. I'm just telling you, it makes them yeah. suffer. Like my kids are in school now and they suffer because of that, because they can see it. And they, they're like, they come home and they're, they're just, they freak out because of just how much their classes are basically just propaganda. Yeah. But they can, at least they can see it. So their suffering is at least not just a complacency, you know? Yeah. Huh. How do you teach your own children to understand these symbols and to the patterns? How, how do you teach them to see them, to live them out, to engage with them? 
I think, I mean, I think that for sure religious practice is a good way to do that. Um, but, you know, in terms of just more educational strategies, the way that I did it with my kids was to help them see patterns. And so I did it with like my kids. We would, when I was young, when they were very young, very young, we would, we would have a rhyming game. Uh, and so we would, we would, the game would be that one person proposes something and the other person has to rhyme it. So we just go back and forth and do this rhyming game. We did this for years. We would just do that. Um, but yeah, but then there's another thing you can do. It's, it's that read, read stories, your kids read, especially fairy tales, old stories, Bible stories. Um, but then don't just, and don't try to explain. I keep telling people, don't explain symbolism to your kids. It's really useless, especially when they're young. But what you can do is you can ask them. So for example, you can, you can read uh, a story like uh, Snow White, right? And then you, you read a story of Snow White and then you get to, I don't know, you get to the place where the, the, the witch gives Snow White an apple, she eats the apple and she dies or she dies. And then you think, oh, that's interesting. Have you ever, have you ever seen that before in another story? Mm. And then they're like thinking and thinking and then usually they'll come to it it's like, oh, we are Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't they eat a fruit and die? like yeah interesting do you think there's a relationship between the two i don't know like i don't know and then you can just all you can do is do that because stories have are do already they rhyme in their structures and so to, to help the kids see how oh this is like that story this is like that story and and i think that that helps them later on when they're c- capable of understanding to be able to now discern the patterns in a more intelligible way mm. that's good advice i like that Um, Okay. Well, thinking about children again, um, do you think it's dangerous to share stories with our children that are outside of the tradition, like maybe Lilith or the Greek gods or Norse mythology? Is there a danger in sharing these stories with our children? Not if you, not if you believe in hierarchy, (laughs) like if you understand hierarchy, there's, there's no danger because you just present the story at the level at which it is. You know, and so especially if you're religious and you, you know, like the way in which, for example, in a church, we read scripture, the way in which we revere the stories that are in the Bible or the story of the saints, depending on your tradition, um, the child will naturally feel the difference between that and you, you telling the story of the, the Iliad or the, you know, I think that it's, I, I don't have a problem with that, you know, the like when you use the example of Lilith, I would say that it, it the closer you come, let's say, to your own tradition, then you maybe have to be a little more cautious, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just a little more. Because Lilith is complicated for Christians because it's just not a Christian story, but it, it's in the in the biblical story. So it's it's a for kids. It's a little problematic. Um, I think it's good for adults to know about that because it's it can help you understand certain things. But. Uh, I would be a little more cautious with stories like that, but less cautious actually with the stories of the, of the, the Greek heroes and the Greek gods, you know, it's but careful, careful with the rape stuff. Like, obviously you have to be careful with like, cause some of these stories are just not, they're, they're very, uh, they're very violent or they're, they're, they're very, in that sense, you want to maybe not on purpose expose your kids to that kind of stuff, you know, uh, but as they get older, it's, it's some, some of these stories are good to know as well because they can help you understand uh, certain patterns for sure. My, my kids, we had fairy tales and Greek myths and, you know, we did that, that um, 
story of the world textbook that the yeah. homeschoolers do. Yes. And uh, yeah. it's it so great that 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 textbook's great because the I forget the name of the author, but she she's really good at putting in folklore and and other traditions inside the more kind of mainstream history. So we would yeah. always like when we were talking about the Babylonians, then we'd like read Gilgamesh and we were like we'd read all these uh, these different traditions from the different people when we were there. That's so great. I've taught with that curriculum as well. I, I liked it. It was a good time. <laughs> um, okay. Well, my last question, what is the responsibility of Christian artists and storytellers? What, what do we do as creators and what, what ought we to do? I mean, a lot of what we've talked about can be depressing. Well, there's an opportunity because when it's dark, then, then, then light shines brighter, you know? And one of the problems that Christians have had in the past few centuries is that because they've often failed to see the deep story patterns in scripture, they've not been able to use those patterns to tell their stories. And so, especially in the modern times, especially like the 20th century, Christian storytelling has become so boring and moralistic and superficial that, you know, it's just not interesting to anybody. Christians pretend it's interesting, but it's just not interesting. And so, so I think that, uh, so there's a weird ironic situation where something like the Lord of the Rings is a more Christian book than the latest horrible, uh, you know, Christian movie that came out, you know, because it's just, just moralizing and, and annoying. Um, And so I think that diving into the Bible story and, diving into the scripture as a pattern for storytelling and then looking at the, looking at the other Christian story, looking at hagiography and the legends that happened during the Christian period, the, the, let's say the Arthurian romances or the different legends that were there can help us kind of recapture a more powerful spirit of storytelling. So I think that Christians have the responsibility of doing that because we have the best story so, so why is it that we can't tell good stories? There's something completely wrong about that, but it's, yeah. it's a very modern phenomenon where it's actually that we've lost the keys to the story. We've kind of lost the, the golden key because we've been so preoccupied at proving that our faith is historically valid or scientifically accurate and all this stuff, which is very secondary to the way in which we actually exist in the world. But understanding that the story of Christ informs all storytelling from the time of its inception, from the time that Christ became a story, it has completely taken over storytelling. And people, secular people, tell Christian stories better than Christians sometimes because they just unconsciously imbibe that pattern of self-sacrifice, the pattern of, of death and resurrection, uh, you know, the, the pattern of helping the weaker, using your strength to help the weaker. These are all Christian stories. They're not They didn't exist before Christianity, at least not in their fullness, you could say. Excellent. Well, thank you. This has been so interesting. Thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Cisterns of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. Join us next week for another conversation and be sure to check out the other shows on the Circe Podcast Network.